0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. The last week um, has been a week filled with big news. You've had big interviews by Pakistan's Foreign Minister, Shah Mahmood Qureshi. You've had a huge interview or an interview that got a lot of coverage both within and outside Pakistan by Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan. Uh, Much of those interviews focused on the prospects in Afghanistan and what's going on there. Um, and the dimming prospects of peace in Afghanistan have led to reports about um, ongoing negotiations between the Pakistanis and the United States um, related to access to bases, some level of military cooperation or counter-terror cooperation. um, And a lot of stuff is still up in the air. And so to understand what's going on, to hear uh, what the predictions are, what the analysis says in terms of the prospects for Afghanistan, not only in 2021 as the American troops withdraw from the region, uh, but beyond. Uh, we have with us uh, Samir Lalwani, who is a senior fellow and director of the South Asia Program at the Stimson Center. Samir is a dear friend um, and and someone who's closely studied not only the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but the broader regional and strategic implications of what's going on in the South Asian region or what has been going on in the South Asian region for a number of years. So Sabir, thank you for taking out the time today and welcome to me. Thanks
1: for having me Zair. I'm a long time listener, big fan.
0: Thank you. Um, let's start with um, the top line, which is, you know, we keep hearing or reading reports um, that one district after the another, another is falling in Afghanistan. Last count I remember reading just this morning um, is close to 50 districts um, in the last couple of months. I think last week it was 30, reports are correct, close to 50 uh, have have fallen since May alone. Um, And the prospects for peace are really dimming. President Ashraf Ghani is coming to Washington DC and meeting President Joe Biden on Friday. Um, So how do you see things shaping up in Afghanistan, particularly as the United States withdraws from the country and what is by most accounts an accelerated withdrawal of troops from the country?
1: Yeah, well, um, that's the million dollar question, I guess, these days. Uh, I think my conclusion is probably um, uh, with most, which is that trends are are poor. Um, You know, the Taliban is militarily effective. Uh, There was a really interesting net assessment that was done by a colleague, Jonathan Schroden, uh, back in uh, the beginning of this year. I've just taken a look at um, his assessments of, you know, Taliban how, how the Taliban stacks up against the ANSDF uh, in terms of size, material resources, external support, force employment, cohesion. Uh, and overall, he sort of tips it uh, to be slightly favorable towards the Taliban. Uh, and I think that's probably right. I think certainly the um, the absence of an Air Force or sort of the diminishment of, of uh, an Afghan Air Force uh, as the U.S. sort of operators and contractors pull out is going to really, I think, tilt the balance. Um you know, and I think, I think the, there's lots of accounts talking about how the Taliban's emboldened um, and that they're sort of, you know, emboldened to sort of move on and sort of take more um, than maybe they even uh, initially expected. There's kind of an argument in um, sort of the operate, military operations where um, sometimes you move faster than you initially plan to, uh, you sort of gain a momentum. Uh, which is both advantageous, but also sort of takes you further than you you initially sort of anticipated. that leads to sometimes mistakes. It leads to mission creep. it leads to um, over uh, exposure or or uh, overextension. Um, but it does certainly appear that you know from all uh, avenues, the Taliban appears emboldened. Um, but I think the logic for why this is gonna play out as a civil war for a while uh, is one that maybe is counterintuitive uh, because I think, you know, We've been saying for 20 years that the Afghans are tired of war. um, And so exhaustion has, has to have set in at some point. And we've been saying this every year for the 20 years that war has either intensified or prolonged. Um, And that's, that's a fair argument to make. I do think people are exhausted, but I think war uh, also sort of has an information dimension to it. And ultimately some, some of the sort of the rationalist theorists of war would argue that what you're, what's happening in the war is it sort of both sides are seeking clarification on the balance of strength and capabilities and resolve. Uh, and in the absence of clarity of that, uh, parties are gonna keep fighting um, because you know, once they sort of resolve that, they, that the balance of uh, capabilities and, and, and resolve, have sort of clarity about that or sort of a mutual understanding of that, then that leads to bargaining in terms of political bargains and sort of the division of stakes. But absent that, you still have incentives to fight uh, sort of, and, and it's sort of like that lack of information Uh, And I always thought that despite the U.S. always talking about um, a hurting stalemate being on the horizon in in Afghanistan or sort of even present at times, uh, that that was sort of, I think, a theory of the Trump administration's escalation in 2017 was to achieve a hurting stalemate and then, uh, you know, try to sort of negotiate something. I don't think we ever achieved a level of hurt, um, uh, sort of a mutual level of hurt on both sides. Um, And I think now by the United States removing itself from the equation... I think there's even more uncertainty about sort of the balance of capabilities and resolve that needs to sort of be sorted out, frankly, through fighting. So this is not a, um, it's not an endorsement of this, but it's sort of, I'm trying to sort of unpack the logic of why you can imagine the Taliban sort of feeling a need to, to continue fighting um, until they, you know, achieve as much as they can on the battlefield, and then we'll negotiate the terms after that. Um,
0: I thought i just say really one quickly. thing on the... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Really quickly on that, so from your point of view, given that uncertainty, um, do you then see that the Taliban basically in the summer and leading up to the winter continuing to escalate the war and going for what we would call some level of total victory, maybe sieging Kabul um, or coming close to doing that? in a way such that when there is more clarity, the political settlement as it would then stand would actually have to be heavily in favor of them and their position um, than it would be for Ashraf Gadi and the Afghan government in Kabul.
1: Yeah, and so this is where I'm at on a limb because I haven't studied uh, sort of the Taliban's, uh, you know, their inner um, logics and thinking of what their sort of their war aims and, and sort of peacetime aims are other than sort of just what I've read on the surface, but I can't think of a logic as to why they would stop. I think it is, is the sort of the ultimate conclusion, right? So you you know, there are lots of logics that would sort of drive you to keep moving, especially if it's a permissive environment, if you're successful, if uh, actors are, are um, uh, you know, or adversaries are either conceding uh, and, and folding or flipping to your side, there's a long history of, Uh, You know, during the Afghan civil wars in the '90s, of uh, major defections of sort of large uh, swaths of of parts of the Western Alliance and even the Northern Alliance. So, um, so I I can't see a logic for why why, by the the Taliban stops unless they sort of hit a brick wall, Uh, and that might turn out to be if if by some sort of uh, miracle the ANSDF sort sort of summons a certain amount of steel, it could actually come about if external parties decide they don't want the Taliban. To succeed, and they try and sort of put uh, both, both sort of deny or constrain the Taliban while trying to also back either a mix of other parties or sort of some sort of you know, unified set of militias in the in the Afghan government's forces. Um, but yeah, is uh, therapist I, I think the Taliban keeps moving.
0: So let's say that, that I agree with you that that that's what happened. I think anyone who believes and in, in in this perspective, I think even. Prime Minister Imran Khan um, from Pakistan is mistaken in, in his recent op-ed he wrote about being partners in peace, which is a well-intentioned uh, uh, well-intentioned take from him. Uh, but he even seems to believe that at some level the Taliban will agree to a political settlement. And my view, and I think you will agree with this, is that any insurgency that has fought for over 20 plus years, um, which feels that momentum is on its side, there is no aerial threat that can take it out and the Afghan forces are retreating if not flipping and surrendering to it, um, has no incentive to seek a political settlement because it is pursuing maximal gains um, on the ground through war. Um, And I think that that is what's playing out right now. And my fear at least is that through the summer and through the fall, the incentive to do that will increase for the Taliban short of a re-involvement of the United States in the war again through air power. And they will try to, you know, solidify their gains before winter sets in. And then maybe we'll see where the negotiations go. Um, but that brings us to the regional powers, um, because they have a role to play here. And they all have certain things going around in terms of their influence or their interests uh, with relation to what happens in Afghanistan. We've seen reports now confirmed um, by the Qataris that the Indian uh, Indians were meeting Taliban in Doha as well. Um, So how do you see the role of regional powers in particular? Let's exclude, let's set Pakistan to the side here, because I want to come back to that at a deeper level. But you have countries like Iran, you have China, you have India, you have Russia. Um, What role do you see them playing in this situation where, frankly, the Taliban have all the incentive in the world to go for outright victory? Um, Meanwhile, all of these powers would actually, at least from their statements, uh, it seems that they would not want that to happen. So what role do they play here?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good question. I mean, like, yeah, I think your point about what there's no incentive for the Taliban to stop is similar to what I'm trying to say uh, is true. Although it doesn't mean that there are no levers of influence over what the Taliban does, right? So one one is in the realm of, of military pressure, uh, of which the United States is sort of removing its application. But that's not to stop. That doesn't preclude other actors in the region from being able to apply military pressure or even at least remove military support, um, which is sort of you know part of. The Taliban's uh, maybe even potential assessment of you know what it's capable of is based on expectations of ongoing and future support or tacit support, let's say, uh, from actors. I mean, there's you know explicit evidence of this from Iran and Pakistan, but um, you know there's even sort of a level of tacit support from from Russia. Uh, and so if that was to disappear and if it was actually to turn into sort of some sort of you know coercion, um, that could potentially change something. I think there are a lot of other actors that have the potential to shape the, the outcome a little bit. And then certainly on the economic side, when I mean, the United States has sort of conditions about, um, you know, the removal of sanctions and financial sanctions and also uh, the prospects for aid. And those are, uh, you know, coercive elements that could shape sort of Taliban choices. But if other regional parties were to share in that um, uh communication and say, you know, we are also going to sort of deny economic support and sort of apply sanctions unless you, you know, stop at a certain ceasefire line and negotiate something like that. So those things haven't, I don't believe have come from any of the other regional compact parties that uh, Imran Khan referred to in his uh, Washington Post op-ed. And I think ultimately this is going to rely much more on them sort of deciding what they want to do. So there's two challenges though I think they have. The first is um, one of you know what I call pivotal deterrence or pivotal compellence. There's a really good book on pivotal deterrence uh, by a guy named Tim Crawford, who's a, um, uh, a professor at BC. And incidentally, the Pakistan national security advisor, Moe Yusuf, wrote a book uh, drawing upon this theory of pivotal deterrence a lot for his his own book on brokered bargaining uh, in, in South Asia. But anyways, the point is simply that We've always had, I think for a lot of parties, we've always had a pivotal problem in uh, um, uh, Afghanistan, which is that you couldn't just coerce one side unidirectionally. You were trying to actively try to coerce both sides. And the United States oftentimes lost sight of this. We were oftentimes trying to coerce uh, the Taliban and some of its backers, including Pakistan, uh, while kind of ignoring what was going on in Kabul uh, Mm. and not applying sort of similar levels of pressure. So, but it's a very complicated and difficult prospect to pivot back and forth essentially between uh, coercing and persuading uh, two parties simultaneously. It's not um, as clean cut. So I think that's the same problem now that Iran and Pakistan and China and Russia uh, will face, which is that they're both trying to, they have been boosters or bolstering the Taliban for an extended period of time, but now they're also trying to rein them in uh, uh, of sorts. And I think that's going to be Particular challenge for them to how how they sort of pivot back and forth between sort of uh, uh, support while also uh, even punishment or constraints. Um, And then the second sort of problem layered on top of that is coordination problem because these actors have been able to operate independently um, and you know have sort of pockets of regional influence, Uh, but they had their sort of their own proxies and strongmen that they were backing and and, and, uh, uh, throughputs for um, conduct, you know, commanding influence in the region and you know really sort of foiling. Uh, US efforts. But now if they want to actually try to achieve a level of stability, they're probably gonna have to coordinate a lot more actively uh, than they previously have. So I think the notionally the 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 proposal the Prime Minister Prime Minister Imran Khan put on the table is is, is the right one, which is sort of this regional compact for intelligence sharing. But it's gonna also require a coordination of conditioning of economic lifelines, uh, potentially bolstering of the other side of of, of the Afghan government. Uh, probably a mutual restraint from introducing heavy weapons that could tilt the balance pretty substantially one direction or the other, and probably communicating uh, cohesively, which I think is absent right now. I mean, you know, Again, I'm not privy to all the details, but it does, seem, it does not seem like there is a sort of coherent set of voices from the region trying to do this. And largely, this is because the region has been free riding on the United States for a very long time. Everyone was very comfortable with the United States sort of carrying the burden of responsibility of leadership and you know of, of military effort uh, and taking a back seat. And frankly, either prioritizing their own individual agendas, whether it was bleeding the United States or countering India or containing EIT, ETIM and the leaders. Um, but now I think uh, the United States has basically made a choice for its own interest uh, to thrust the problem back on to the regional actors and leaders. Um, and I'll quote a. A colleague who wrote this about, you know, several, uh, two, three years ago basically argued the United States should stop solving security problems for those states that are eager to create problems for us. And if getting out of Afghanistan creates a few headaches for them, so much the better. And I think, to be frank, that's kind of what's happening right now.
0: I mean, that, I would argue, is would have been... The right choice and that was inherently where we were going at least I thought where we were going sitting here in Washington when President Joe Biden said the troops are coming home they're going to be out by September. It was even accelerated, but then we got the conversation going through leaks from from the media that. Um, wait a minute, we actually may want some bases in Pakistan or some level of kinetic, non-kinetic operational capabilities to be able to not only collect intelligence in Afghanistan, but conduct drone strikes or airstrikes um, as needed. And that to me at least seemed that, you know, we're not fully keen on cutting the umbilical cord uh, with Afghanistan and letting the region sort of deal with the problem of Afghanistan. And as you said, rightfully stop, you know, allowing regional powers from free riding, um, on us, on the United States, um, that hasn't, are, do you think that that's been the decision or is there some level of confusion here in Washington as well in terms of what everyone wants to do, because I, my view on this is, at some level, it seems like everyone is also worried about an ISIS like scenario in Iraq, where the United States has withdrawn and ISIS is running roughshod over Iraq, and we have to re- get reinvolved in the war. And this time they're trying to hedge that with some level of kinetic and non-kinetic capabilities to project power into Afghanistan. Do you think there's clarity in terms of what we actually want to do um, or Washington wants to do with related to Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it has been dizzying for me to watch as well. And I can only speculate from the sidelines. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, offer a few hypotheses, right? So like the, the first and obvious one is, um, this is like bureaucratic, uh, not necessarily turf wars, but, uh, different different arms of the bureaucracy sort of fighting for their prerogatives and, and priorities, right? And so there's long been a CT counterterrorism um uh node within uh the Pentagon, within the CIA, within the intelligence community at large, within the State Department that is is sees this acute threat coming from the potential uh reorganization um and, and re, uh, rebirth of of a lot of transnational terrorist organizations within Afghanistan and is saying we need to have a way to, to keep this down and, and is searching for options of that, of which, you know, bases uh, outside of Afghanistan, but in the region are a possibility. Now, I would argue, and I think many have, and probably the Biden administration is deeply aware of this, uh, that essentially if you just sort of move your bases from Bagram to like, you know, Pakistan or um, to, to Uzbekistan or something like that, you're, you're kind of... Uh, just transferring your problem to another area, but you're not really sort of getting yourself out of like the, the real fix, which is that we've been fighting and losing war for a long time and will continue to do so at like great cost to the American taxpayer. Um so so I think there's sort of that that challenge. It's possible that 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 you know that bureaucratic fight needs to be resolved. Um there's probably I think an element that you pointing to which is like the political cost that every uh, leader grows acutely uh you know sensitive to which is that you don't want to have like a as they say a Saigon moment on your hands or on your watch um and certainly the, the experience of ISIS uh you know, overrunning uh what was seen to be as gains by the United States in Iraq um uh was I think uh, uh seemed to be a political setback a lot no, no one's really articulated what those political costs are like it looked like maybe it looks bad for a little while but it's not like it you know cost Democrats like um uh, It's unclear that it sort of actually cost... uh, Yeah, I was going to say it
0: it didn't cost any uh, seats in the midterms or any political support, right? This is where these
1: things are like really theoretical without or like they're like notional without actually being empirically validated. I think this happens all the time. Like, you know, there's, oh, there's egg on your face because of a foreign policy blunder. Whereas like on a daily basis, we've been suffering foreign policy blunders in Afghanistan and somehow that political cost uh, is not sort of born in, in some way by the same administration. So... So yeah, I think that's like another, but I think it's real and it comes up in these moments where you sort of see a moment where of like sort of perceived stability, even though we knew for a fact, and I, I would argue this for a while, the cost of maintaining stability in Afghanistan was about to go up very rapid, very high after May after the May 1st deadline. So it was like an insurance premium uh, that people like to describe our presence in Afghanistan as like a, a cheap insurance plan, but the it was a floating rate that was about to explode um, after May 1st. And so... Um, so I think people are getting sensitive to that and, and looking for sort of alternatives. Uh, but then I think the third, you know, um, there's an alternative theory out there or, or argument that I've heard, which is that like, what if these leaks aren't coming from the United States? I and mean, the United States might be going about trying to sort of figure this out, but it may not be quite as desperate as it seems. Um, and there's, there's a particular actor that keeps saying, no, 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 very loudly uh and it's conspicuous right because if they're really concerned about the political cost of this maybe they would sort of do this more in private rather than in public but uh so i yeah i I was wondering like at some point is on really sort of driving this conversation really drive the price up or just sort of like structure the terms of it um a a potential basing in a particular way but i do think that you know the, the prime minister has been so explicit and so vocal he's effectively tied his hands and maybe maybe the purpose wasn't just to tie his hands uh, uh, from sort of any U.S. basing, but maybe it was to tie the military, the Pakistan military's hands from being able to sort of set up uh, an arrangement with the United States as it did, um, you know, in 2001, 2002, uh, when it sort of set up a terms so terms of agreement for military access, overflight basing, um, and then drone basing in particular, which uh, I think came to sort of um, really irritate the Pakistan political leadership, uh, even though it was, passively, if not actively, permitted by by the Pakistani state.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the op-ed the hashtag, absolutely not in the Jonathan Swan interview, I, I, I think that those are all attempts to not only put a stake in the ground uh, by the prime minister himself, but largely tie the military establishment closer to his position from which the, you know, to walk back from the United States would have to offer a much higher price than what one would typically imagine, which is some level of counterterror funds uh, for our military assistance, some level of IMF negotiation or ease of conditions from the IMF um, right. and the FATF sort of decision that's about to come through. Um, that's the standard sort of what's on the table, right? But then if you keep saying no, and this is a very sort of South Asian thing, right? You go to a market and the first thing the price is offered, you say no, and you walk out and you expect the, the seller to walk, you know, come back to you into the street yeah, and then yeah. bring you back into the store and give you a cup of tea and, you know, calm <laughs> you down, so to speak, right? right? Yeah, it yeah. seems like that sort of negotiation is playing out politically in real time in front of us. Um, but really, from your point of view, like, how would you see um, Pakistan's role in this moving forward? They clearly, at least publicly on the civilian side, have been saying they want an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned process, an inclusive and democratic Afghanistan is in our interest. Um, But then also at the same time, they don't really want to publicly, you know, push the Taliban and and condemn the fact that they've actually escalated violence in the last few months. Um, So how do you assess or how would you hypothesize the game or the role Pakistan is trying to play after, frankly, two decades of war where it has played both sides of the aisle?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, I think, I think what's probably ha- is happening is that Pakistan is in the process of updating its priors um, about, you know, what the, what the incentive structures are amongst sort of different parties in the region. So I think, you know, my sense is that a lot of actors in the region were surprised by the, like by Biden administration's decision. I think they all kind of counted on this recurring, um, uh, sort of lapse back into, but we can't we can't withdraw completely. So we're going to stay there. And there's always been sort of an echo chamber in Washington arguing for that. And I think we just, you know, the ex the Pakistan, the Afghan government, um, maybe even China, I'm not sure, it's, you know, I'm not pretty sure of like, you know, what the thinking is in Russia and, and, and Tehran on this, but like, it seemed like they just assumed that the United States is going to continue to do this as we've done since 2012, every year sort of just sort of kicking the can down the road because it was a political cost. And so I think they were genuinely surprised and now they have a process of updating their um, assumptions, and expectations. And one of them is that they have to come to terms with the fact that the United States is no longer going to be the actor in the region that cares most about this problem. I remember talking to a colleague in the State Department in 2017, who was saying, you know, the problem with sort of this effort at like, you know, whether you know, whether you sort of go the route of escalate and then hope to sort of negotiate um, with the Taliban or whether you just sort of sort of suit, you know, for a, um, a reconciliation process is that the United States at that time was the actor, the the only actor with a sense of urgency and all the other actors were kind of, they wouldn't say blasé about it, but this was not, it didn't have the same sense of urgency, even though the costs were mostly being borne by them in the region. So I think now uh, the equation is going to be very different. The United States is going to be less exposed, at least in the near term. And I would argue even in the long term, uh, to the dynamics of what unfolds in Afghanistan, the spillover, the uh, convulsions from a, a civil war, obviously the violence, the refugees, uh, even terrorism risks, right? I mean, most of these terrorists are not going to be able to cross multiple continents to conduct a strike on the US homeland. Most of them are going to be regionally oriented and that should affect the region most. So I, I would, think there's gonna be I would also
0: say, you know, especially they they would you know, it's also just an incentive that you have defeated the United States and it has retreated. So the incentive to continue hitting an enemy that you have defeated also reduces from a radical point of view. And I think you would agree with this, the near enemy now is different because there's something going on in Western China that is far more antagonizing to Muslims and radical Muslims that are in that part of the world than what the United States may or may not be doing. Because guess what? The radicals defeated the United States in their worldview, right?
1: Right. Yeah, there are are other fish to fry, I think. Um, But yeah, it's not clear to me that Pakistan is updated, and not just Pakistan, but I think a lot of the actors in the region have updated their understanding of that problem now, right? So the bargaining over bases and stuff like that, like the United States probably wants them because it will mitigate some of the risks and the costs if we could get it like, uh, and I'm not even sure if it's like if the US establishment would really go for this, because I think there are real costs that we know and headaches down the road with this. But if they could get something sort of relatively easy, accessible, cheap, for some persistent ISR intelligence to uh, surveil and sort of, you know, keep tabs on um, critical events, uh, I think they would take it, but I also think that they're not going to pay a King's ransom for it. Like they might have, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, and so that adjustment needs to take place. And then at the end of the day, the costs are going to be borne by Pakistan. I mean, I, you know, it's funny, like when I read, uh, Imran Khan's op-ed, um, and even in his, his interview with Jonathan Swan, I, I didn't sense that sense of urgency, but in track two dialogues that I've been participating in with, with um, uh, Pakistani uh, strategists and, and you know, really sort of like smart thinkers, um, I hear a continuous refrain about the fear of Taliban emboldenment, specifically Afghan Taliban emboldenment, and what that means for Pakistan. And I think it sort of could mean two things. One is just that they're less uh, vulnerable to pressure or suggestion or influence, uh, even though for a long time Pakistan believed that the Afghan Taliban would safeguard Pakistan's interests and its border interests, maybe the Duran line um, stability there. And I have like some interesting quotes about this that I've been digging up from um, uh, Pakistan military journals. But so I think there was a belief that that might start to erode now. But then the second is that actively or tacitly there is evidence coming out that Pakistani uh, scholars and analysts have written about recently uh, that the TTP, which is a mortal foe of Pakistan, uh, is going to have uh, either sanctuary or support, uh, again, tacitly or actively um, from the Afghan Taliban. And so that's that's going to be, a, that's a direct threat to Pakistan. So I think they're, they're coming to terms with this. At the end of the day, the United States isn't, um, isn't going to go all out to safeguard Pakistan's interest against the TTP. That's ultimately a choice that Pakistan has to make. I think the proposition the United States might put on the table is, if we do some sort of forward basing here, we can help each other out. We can keep tabs on transnational threats as well as TTP threats that are of interest to you. And oh, by the way, remember who took out Beitullah Masood and Hakimullah Mullah Masood and uh, sort of the, all of the leadership of the TTP from 29, 2009 to 2014, uh, Mullah Nazir. So, um, you know, there should be a mutual interest here, a mutual deal here, but I, I, I suspect that Pakistan thinks that it, it, it either is expecting more, um, or uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe politically it's just untenable to do, and then you know, they have to sort of find another alternative route for this.
0: And I think we're seeing some of the impact already. Right, there's been an increase um, in terms of the attacks on Pakistani security forces along the Durand Line, attacks in Balochistan, the Serena Hotel attack. Um, that was targeted towards the Chinese ambassador who was in Quetta at that time. Um, all of that is, I think, in the last six months, the increase or the in uptake in tempo signals that something is happening or something is changing. And I think from the Pakistani perspective, the concern is valid, right, that uh, a victory or an outright victory or a resurgent Taliban in Afghanistan not only creates the pockets of, you know, support or sanctuary for groups like the TTP and Baloch militant groups, uh, but also it emboldens the ideology that the Taliban and the TTP both are aligned on, and that yeah. ideology, you know, you can't fence it out from the border, right? right? As much right. as you want to fence out the people coming back and forth, um, and so the risk is real, um, which brings me to my next question, um, and you know, we've talked about this offline uh, back and forth as well. But it seems like the risk of an ensuing civil war or a coming civil war in Afghanistan means that Pakistan will, in many ways, be drawn back into the world of geopolitics, which it publicly has been trying to push away from and embrace what is they're calling the pivot to geoeconomics. Um, how do you see this supposed pivot, which is actually there in narrative format? but at some level actually is also playing out in terms of the policies the government is trying to push on the ground. Um, do you see this as some sort of meaningful, substantial pivot that the Pakistanis are doing? And overall, how do you rate its chances of success?
1: Yeah, I've been I've been trying to understand this as well, That the term geoeconomics, I and mean, there's been some good writing on this of late, including uh, Ambassador Malia these peace and dawn, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've follow a lot of what Arif Rafiq writes on this as well, as well as you as Eric, cause um, I think you, you all have sort of a, a really strong command of what's going on in the Pakistan economy. So I, you know, I'll, I'll I have a few thoughts like geoeconomics, I think traditionally um, and conceptually in this, is, I think that Ambassador Lodi talks about is like, it assumes you leverage economic power for political leverage and political consequences. Um, and uh, And I think what really Pakistan is invoking is is the inverse of that, right? It's trying to invoke uh, some sort of uh, political and security consequences that Pakistan contains or is is, uh, present within to generate uh, economic activity and economic engagement, investment, trade. Uh, And I think it's coming from a genuine place of Pakistan sort of taking stock and realizing that in the last 20 years, despite um, a lot of cash that came in, Partially due to its relationship with the United States and, and the war on terrorism, um, it did not generate dynamic returns for Pakistan. You know, standards of living, for economic growth, um, developments, uh, human capital development, and, uh, and certainly you know having effects on employment as well. So I think that's that that's sort of like the general proposition. And I and I and I not only sympathetic to it. I think I I support that idea. Pakistan has to play the hand it's dealt, and, and right now it's trying to sort of figure out like how it can leverage its uh, geopolitical context to to drive economic activity but you know like this is not let's be clear this is not for just the sake of the you know the fact that pakistan's economy is rosy on its own i mean otherwise we just call it an economic strategy right this is clearly trying to leverage something um political and uh and i think that you know it tends to it, it, it can it can be executed smartly um and and it should be executed smartly better rather than how it was i think in 2001 when Pakistan, both sort of subject to both coercion, but also, frankly, bribery, uh, was offered sort of a deal of, you know, access and and bases and collaboration and cooperation um, and and intelligence sharing in exchange for a lot of money up front. I was looking at the numbers. I mean, while we talk about this figure of 30 billion uh, dollars in the United States over the course of the war on terrorism over two decades, um, some of the early estimates I, I saw are that within the first five years, Uh, there was explicit, there was uh, above board 10 billion transferred to Pakistan in terms of CSF, economic uh, support funds, um, economic aid. Uh, But then on top of that, there was suspected to be a fair amount of cash that came from the intelligence agencies for like ransoms on particular Al-Qaeda targets um, and things like that. So it was estimated that it could have even been up to 20 billion uh, within those first five years That's a lot of money, but it doesn't seem like it was like, it was put to good use and didn't generate those dynamic returns. So 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 Pakistan wants to sort of come up with a new strategy for how it generates uh, greater economic interest and activity and, and flows really. Um, and I think the risk though, it, it Pakistan also has to be careful about, well, I think this is, is the right approach generally is that it should not appear to be generating risks to extract rent, right? Cause that can appear like a shakedown or like blackmail. Um, and that would be, I think, to, to, to Pakistan's detriment. And if it did, it might still generate some short term payouts, but probably long term divestment. Um, and I think its ability to sort of leverage that threat um, is, is far reduced now. Because I said, as I said, like the United States and Western exposure to this risk is, is also uh, reducing, right? I mean, troops are coming out, NATO is pulling out, there are embassies there, but some embassies are pulling out as well. Um, So it's not, you can't sort of leverage the same demands as you were able to when the U.S. was at sort of peak troop levels of over 100,000, NATO's at 150,000 troops. And then there are alternative ways, you know, that that the international community could push back if Pakistan tries to sort of take that shakedown approach, including economic sanctions and, and, you know, FATF has sort of, I think, been the most devastating for Pakistan uh, relative to any other punitive measure the United States uh, attempted. So so I think that, you know, what this is going to require then for this to work is, Uh, things that you've written about is like good old-fashioned economic reforms um of which you sort of know far more about this than I but you know when I read I think for Arv's piece for example I thought his point about you know having to sort of decartelize uh certain industries in order to like allow for sort of competitive industries that will then lead to exports and you know foreign exchange and um and then sort of you know more dynamic investment uh, in the region I think that's probably the path but it's extremely difficult and uncomfortable and it sort of uh goes up against um, not just strategic and military elites, but but political elites' um, interests. And I think that that sounds to me like it's, it's, it's unlikely it requires tremendous political capital and courage. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen uh, anytime soon. But the expectation that the United States would find just, you know, search for means for investment to put large sums of money into the Pakistan economy. Uh, and I've heard sort of various schemes about this, whether it's coming from Um, back payments for CSF to the development finance corporation to, um, you know, economic support funds again. I mean, I just don't see that happening. Uh, And we can talk about, you know, the role of Congress here, but I think like, you know, that's just, it's not even a reasonable ask because the administration can't say yes, even if it wanted to, it's going to have to go through Congress for a lot of this stuff. So I think again, that the framework and the paradigm is right. But most of the work is going to require Pakistan to sort of uh, work internally on itself to make itself appealing, and then with the right partnerships—not through the Department of Defense, of the United States, maybe through the State Department—but really, we're talking about the Commerce Department, Development Finance Corporation, maybe USTR at some point, maybe Department of Energy for climate investments. Those are the targets for uh, sort of uh, you know partners potentially, maybe cleared through the State Department um, for Pakistan. But it's not—I don't think it's going to be the Pentagon, and I think that's. That's a huge adjustment shift from the last 20 years. And frankly, the last 70 years of the US Pakistan relationship that um, it's going to take some getting used to.
0: Yeah, I think in the near term, like the hope would be that the $3 billion that they have put in as a line item uh, as IMF um, budgetary support grants that are needed to sustain the budget, which in many ways is running contrary to what the agreement with the IMF is. So, some level of easing uh, where the IMF nods and winks and gives you that money at a Lower, you know, uh, to to float the budget or to maintain the budget is is what will be needed to have the growth. But again, will that be sustainable? Remains to be seen. And I agree with RF uh, uh, in terms of you know decartalizing the economy. You've seen that just in the last two weeks alone, where there were new taxes on the dairy industry, and they did a one week long, cam- long campaign um, that ended with some senior level meetings, and the tax was then taken away. And if different cartels, different lobbies are able to do that um, in a way where the budgets and its numbers and the predicted numbers are, you know, thrown out the window, uh, right, when the budget is stable, then it doesn't leave much confidence in terms of the overall capacity or the capability of the government to absorb the loss of political capital to make tough choices. And that is essentially the heart of the issue. And yes, that when you are unable to do that, then everything Related to seeking investment from the United States or getting better terms from the IMF, et cetera, all become, you know, become seen as shakedowns or blackmail because you are not doing the hard work yourself, yet you expect concessionary financing to come into your economy to do what? Like maintain the status quo, which is extractive and rent-seeking in essence, right? And that doesn't generate sustainable growth. So it, the cycle continues until the next round uh, of negotiations come about. Um, But within this thing, we're seeing in the broader region, right? Pakistan, China, obviously, CPAC has played a big role in terms of developing Pakistan's hard infrastructure. There's an emerging U.S.-China rivalry that is leading to a U.S.-India sort of deepening relationship. How do you see all of these things strategically playing out within the broader region with, and I'm guessing, with the role or the evolving situation in Afghanistan sort of creating a, a perfect storm, so to speak, right? Just today, uh, you know, in this morning, you must have seen there was a bomb attack in Lahore, um, uh, allegedly targeting Hafiz Saeed, uh, the chief of the Lashkar-e-Taiba, his home. He wasn't there, or that's what they're saying. Uh, but essentially, it seems like some of this proxy war, bombing, counter-bombing type of stuff is back in vogue in the region. And all of this is happening within sort of this, rivalry between the United States and China, deepening ties between US and India, Pakistan making a geoeconomics thing. How do you see all of this play out?
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I always sort of disagree with is I'm not sure if it's back in vogue. I feel like this has been going on. You know, we don't, sometimes we sort of pay attention to the bigger activities, but I feel like there's been, um, you know, spy wars going on for a long time. Sometimes there's violence that sort of comes with it, but uh, certainly jockeying for position within Afghanistan, uh, for the last couple decades. Um, yeah, you know, I, like, I, I'd say maybe two things and then pivot back to something else that I wanted to say earlier about, you know, uh, geoeconomics, which is I think you're going to see a fair amount of this, um, uh, you know, using use of proxies and sort of shadow actors. Uh, there are a lot of them in, Af- in Afghanistan. I remember. Uh, uh, you know, an expert, um, uh, an Afghanistan expert, Michael Semple, making a comment at a conference, maybe, you know, five years or a decade ago, uh, that there's, you know, the Afghans are very good at pulling other, other sort of large actors into their wars. And this is sort of in response to a point that like, you know, the United States or like uh, third parties should sort of get out of Afghanistan. Well, let's be honest, like there's a, it's a, it's a game that two, two parties play and um, there are Afghan actors that pull in support from um, external players as well. Which, by so the way, been... really
0: quickly, before I lose my train of thought, is something like yeah. I recently reread Nama, the history of Babur, Emperor Babur as he wrote yeah. it and in terms of his view. And this was the same thing back then, too. It was like these sure. Uzbek lords and Mongol lords and the Persians coming in and going out as they please. So it's been part of the history, uh, long-term history of that region in terms of how wars are fought and rivalries are dealt with.
1: I didn't even realize it extended that far. That's that's really incredible. But um yeah, so I, I suspect that'll continue. I think India uh, you know, for a while it always seemed to me that India had a play to make, which was uh the Taliban w- were were bristling under the under the thumb of just the ISI. And so they uh wanted sort of external partnerships. They certainly got one with Iran, and I think that actually uh uh made Pakistan very concerned and frustrated uh, about sort of these ex- you know other um uh patrons uh i think india i don't think india is going to be a patron of the taliban but like if it's a partner or sort of you know works with some uh splinter groups or something like that i wouldn't be surprised i think russia is going to cultivate some of its interests there as well i'm not really sure where china is going typically it's defaulted uh to pakistan um or, or not defaulted but sort of you know, deferred to pakistan's uh, guidance on this and sort of their principal interest is in safeguarding against uh Uyghur separatists uh that sort of can you know, activate in but um, they might start to think they need to start do a, do uh, take on more responsibility and activity, um, whether to safeguard CPEC investments, whether uh, because of the Wakhan corridor becomes you know a, a a point of entry that's of concern to them. So I think everyone's going to have to start to develop proxy strategies. It could get interacted with this idea of great power competition. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised by that, but. To be honest, I don't think the locus of great power competition is, is in Central Asia. We, we've tried to sort of talk about the great game for a long time. And, uh, you know, there's potential for sort of like the, 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 the New Silk Road or whatever, you know, the Belton Road. Um, I don't think this is a great consequence, at least to the United States. So at least one actor I think is not going to play that hard. It might dabble a little bit from here and there, especially if it believes that it will sort of suck resources uh, and divert, you know, China and Russia's attention. Uh, all the better, but yeah, I remember talking to a sort of a senior U.S. strategist, um, who you know, U.S. government strategist, whose argument was basically like from the, from the broad perspective of the U.S. grand strategy, which warlord controls how many thousand square kilometers of territory in Afghanistan is of zero consequence to the United States, and I, I think that's largely right. So where is the competition going to take place? I Man, I think it's you know we know it's in sort of Southeast Asia, South China Sea. And again, back to the geoeconomics points, um, this is sort of where you have the overlap of strategic interests, economic opportunity, um, where investors can see dynamic gains. So, you know, the scope of the economies in Vietnam. You know, Vietnam is sort of close to Pakistan, sort of total size of its economy, but then Malaysia, Philippines, and Thailand are all bigger, uh, Singapore as well, and then Indonesia is much bigger. So that's where I think the United States is going sort of probably, if it's going to sort of put its thumb on the scale, for political and strategic interests uh, to drive sort of economic investments or, or infrastructure developments, um, that's where it's going to go. I don't think it's going to get concentrated in Pakistan. It doesn't mean that Pakistan's of no consequence, it certainly is, uh, but less so than I think the Pakistanis have thought, or maybe less so than it has been over the last two decades.
0: I think some of us South Asian experts, including myself, are at times sort of you know, ignore um, to our mistake, um, the role of Bangladesh in all of this, because I think it will have a much larger role to play as this rivalry heats up in the East yep. because it's got a dynamic economy. It's much more stable. Um, it is, it has played all sides of the aisle or, you know, with Japan, China, India, the United States to a certain level as well, because it's a big trade market for the Bangladeshis and it has made the right investments, right? And I think we've seen some of that, already sort of some trailers of this coming out with the Chinese ambassador there talking about Bangladesh joining the Quad, which caught everyone uh, by surprise, including the Bangladeshis were like, where did this come from? But clearly the Chinese seem to be worried, not worried about enough, but enough to sort of signal that they won't be happy if this were to happen. And I think we often forget that as this rivalry heats up, Bangladesh will play an important role. I don't know if you had thoughts about their strategy but I see them as something that we need to pay attention to because they're doing some interesting things as well. That's
1: a really good point. I mean, I think you're right. I've I've seen some of your uh, writings and, and tweets about this, but you know, just like the eclipsing the size of the Pakistan economy, this has been like oh, not not just the size, but also GDP per capita, um, so wealth as well, um, which is you know kind of astonishing in some ways, considering you know the origins of, of Bangladesh. I think you're right that they have positioned themselves very carefully between some of these major powers frankly that's um that's i think fine for the United States i mean uh, my sense that the United States is not looking for a whole bunch of new allies but rather for for states to sort of remain diversified rather than beholden to a single country and I think so the way that uh Bangladesh has done that with sort of its uh uh you know. Uh, arms acquisitions, it's uh, infrastructure developments, it's political ties. I think it's pretty well diversified, which positions it well, but then also uh, at least from sort of like a US standpoint uh, is probably you know, in the United States interest as well. But yeah, that region is gonna be really consequential. The Bay of Bengal is, is getting increasingly contested um, in the naval domain. I think um, you know, it's probably after the South China Sea, maybe uh, you know, after the East, East China Sea and South China Sea, like it starts to uh, become sort of one of these pivotal theaters uh, of competition um, and more so for, you know, for India and China, if anything, um, I think the United States would pay close attention to that. The one point where I would sort of uh, quibble a little bit, and this is sort of, again, out of my lane, but from what I've heard, um, is that <clears throat> while the politics are, uh, are, are stable now, uh, there's a long history of, you know, sort of rivalry between the, the warring uh, factions, or warring Begums, uh, and there's not cl- a clear line of succession. Um, after this so after this sort of phase of politics in Bangladesh what comes next and that that I think could sort of throw some wrinkles in there that you know I'm sure all parties need to be attentive to uh, you know what are the relation political relationships they have with other uh, with both parties but also particular leaders is it going to remain dynastic in some way or is it going to uh, start to allow for you know sort of more internal democracy within um, some of these parties but That'll be, that'll be uh, something that I think the United States will uh, and, and China will pay attention to.
0: Yeah, and I think they'll also, um, I remember having this conversation before sort of uh, Prime Minister Modi's visit to Dhaka about sort of radicalism in Bangladesh and Jamaat-e-Islami being sort of, you know, destroyed by Sheikh Hasina uh, in many ways, but that hifajat islam had sort of emerged as a counter force um, on the right. Um, And people initially were, you know, that I would speak to that kept an eye on this were like dismissive that, no, it's stable, etc. But then Prime Minister Modi came and we saw days of violence um, caused by Fajid Islam. And I think that's another out of the succession point. There's also this point about the role of radical violence um, within the country. And can these two forces combine the lack of a successor and political instability coupled with a right wing movement that is more extreme than the Jamaat? but that has found itself filling the vacuum left uh, by the Jamaat as it was targeted by Sheikh Hasina's government. And Sheikh Hasina has also tried to co opt it in many ways. So I think that will be another important dynamic that the United States should pay attention to as well. I want to come back to Afghanistan before we conclude um, yeah. and particularly focus on sort of President Rushab Ghani coming here. What will you be watching for Um, in this meeting particularly as it comes on the back of some very terrible news or at least pessimistic news coming out of Afghanistan in terms of the ability of the Afghan state to continue pushing back against Taliban like what are some things that you know obviously we're recording this before the trip Um, the podcast will go out the day after the trip Um, so some people may hold you to account on your predictions but let's let's game this out right what are things some things you will be watching out for uh, from this trip
1: yeah. Um, all right. So I guess I can sort of work it through this way. Uh, so if I was Ashraf Ghani, would I, what would I be asking for that's sort of within the realm of possibility? So I think sort of some sort of economic commitment and lifeline, which I think is the first thing, right? So, continued support for the uh, Afghan National Security Forces and maybe, um, you know, frankly, more than just sort of the security resources, I think the Afghan government needs to be able to have some flexibility. Uh, if it wants to buy loyalties of a bunch of other militias and uh, warlords that are right now have a sort of common cause, but uh, and, and seem to be sort of banding together, at least like you know notionally, it seems like from some reporting, but I think uh, in the long run, uh, how do you sort of keep them all together as a coalition? So I imagine he would be asked for that. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has ruled out air support uh, in battles with the Taliban, but I wonder if there's wiggle room that Ghani could try to sort of press for, like uh, if there's not like nominally ISIS fighters in an area or Al Qaeda fighters in an area, and you know there there's sort of intelligence that sort of says that there should be you know targeting of these particular actors that are maybe plotting something, and uh, I, I think that's sort of where he's probably going to try to find some wiggle room if, if possible. I mean, I, I imagine it's a it's a losing cause because the United States has learned its lesson of uh, trying to sort of you know, playing whack-a-mole with every potential al-Qaeda fighter that, you know, actually is just sort of rebranded from being, you know, a different brand of um, uh, Taliban or, or, you know, sort of former other, you know, uh, another disgruntled group. So I I think that the U.S. is probably wary of of committing to anything like that, but I imagine that's where where Ghani would go. and then I think, from the United States standpoint, what what are they looking for? I mean, it's it, we're past the point of major reforms or any kind of like reforms, whether in terms of corruption or cleaning up the uh, the security forces or professional professionalization. But probably something um, that shows that Ghani is willing to uh, maybe even set himself aside uh, for the good of the country. I'm not sure if that's what the United States would ask for, but I think a willingness to say like we're fle- that you know a flexibility. To devolve authorities and power, uh, and whatever it would take for the Afghan uh, state to to survive, you know, a Taliban slide. And again, I even hesitate to say that because um, the question is, so for how long? And then what you get after that? When you can have sort of another sort of you know uh, diffusion of power to a number of warlords is going to a new headache down the road, um, which also still could be vulnerable to uh, Taliban offensive. So. I don't really know what the United States asks at this point, um, but I can imagine Nasir Ghani asks for you know support and try to try to sort of um, uh, uh, use the Najibullah mold as uh, so, you know someone who can sort of hold on to power uh, with external you know support um, and some you know cleverly crafted deals with uh, various uh, strongmen in the country.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see what comes out of this. I think like it is a dire situation there, and I think at some level um going back to where you know the initial points you were making in terms of every side trying to figure out where the balance of power lies and what the dynamics are i think the taliban for sure will be watching closely at this trip and seeing what the united states offers and what ashraf ghani is able to walk away with because i think that will then determine or inform their calculation in terms of their current momentum how much further along do they need to push or do they want to push um and what's in store for afghanistan so i think This is an evolving story. I think all of us hope that there is peace and stability in Afghanistan. It's been a long protracted war. Um, But I think the realistic assessment is that there is a lot more pain around the corner um, than many of us would like Um, and, you know, we'll hope for the best. But before I let you go, this has been a fascinating conversation. You've already recommended a couple of books as you've sort of discussed with us. But I would like to conclude with your recommendations on books that you know, have deeply influenced you or you would recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's a, you made the mistake of like to warning me of this question. So I have way too many to recommend uh, probably the uh, the result of having moved most of my office library to my home over the last uh, year or so. Um, but I guess, you know, there's a couple that come to mind, um, two or three. Uh, Shaping Strategy by, by Reza Brooks is one of my favorite books. It really got me thinking about Um, this dependent variable of strategic assessment, Uh, And in it her her sort of best studies I think are uh, of actually uh, Nasser's Egypt uh, and um, uh, well Egypt under Nasser and then Sadat later uh, and how civil military relations affect uh, strategic assessment and the quality of strategic assessment of which part of that is military strategy and effectiveness but it's sort of a broader strategic portfolio um, but there are real implications and lessons to be drawn for South Asia as well. She has a mini shadow case study of Pakistan, but I think it, you know uh, a lot of the uh, the idea of sort of civil military balance and how that affects those calculations would apply to a lot of countries in South Asia, including India as well. Um, another book that you know uh, was influential for me, so, you know, on my dissertation committee is, is uh, uh, "Inadvertent Escalation" by Barry Posen. Um, and it was a book that sort of had poor timing because it was released in '91 at the end of the Cold War, um, and it was basically talking about sort of you know uh, how conventional uh, escalation could lead to nuclear escalation by inadvertent, uh, intentional acts that trigger unintentional uh, effects um, that sort of draw nuclear strategic responses. Um, but it's it's back. I'd say not just back in vogue, but it's actually being uh, is a really useful. Uh, template to understand some of the dynamics that are emerging between the United States and Russia with China. Uh, For me, I've I've used it to sort of better understand uh, some of the risks that can uh, result from um, uh, conventional conflicts or tips between uh, India and Pakistan. So I think that's, uh, again, a a great, great work, really detailed and and valuable methodology for thinking about escalation dynamics. And then I think... um, you know, uh, I figure I should throw in a, a book on Pakistan. I'm not sure if this is going to make people happy or disappointed, but for whatever reason, I always thought that uh, Pakistan, a Hard Country by Anatole Levin was a really, uh, really well written book, uh, really accessible. Um, I think maybe, uh, you know, sort of, may- maybe make some sort of, you know, uh, uh, mistakes of essentialism, but uh, for the most part, I think it gets a lot right uh, in trying to understand the balance of, of states and societies I and mean, there's this concept that joel Migdal uh talks about, about uh uh weak states and strong societies um and and i was reading that theory theory book by Migdal at the same time i was reading anatole's book and it, it really uh spoke to me so i think that's a, a a great read for for um anyone who's trying to sort of make sense of not just Pakistan, frankly but but you know in south asia at large and you know i'm gonna i'm gonna stick one more throw one more book in there just because i was like literally reading this uh an hour before, but for us to understand, you know, what, how the Taliban sort of might evolve and fight um, and how the civil war might play out. There's a new book by Steve Biddle out on on non-state warfare. uh, And I suspect it's going to be really good because his last book on military power was really excellent and also really formative in my, in my approach to analysis. All right. So, sorry, I overloaded it.
0: (laughs) No, those are great recommendations. You're the second guest to have recommended Pakistan, a hard country. It is a good book. It's something I read when I was doing my master's thesis research, and it is a good primer and a good sort of foundational text. then yes, I mean, I I would be hard pressed to find any book that does not have its its set of issues. I think that's why you read several different authors and try to find a way to understand what's going on anywhere from a theoretical or non-theoretical perspective. But I agree that um, this is a good book that you know, anyone who wants to get started on understanding Pakistan better um, should read, including Pakistanis who may think that they know a lot about their own country and frankly may not, uh, including the history of that country's relations with the United States. Um, so Samir, thank you so much for taking, taking out the time. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, we'll all keep an eye out for the presidential visit to Washington, D.C., and hope for the best in Afghanistan, and maybe have you back again soon, maybe sometime around the fall, where we will have more clarity in terms of what the overall military gains look like for the Taliban in this season of fighting.
1: Well, then I'd have to account for all my mispredictions, but no, it'd be great to, <laughs> great to do that, and great to be on this with you, Azuzer.
0: Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All
1: right. Bye.